You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This sermon podcast is The Impact of Pentecost, presented by Justin Hibbert, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Well, good morning to all of you again. And uh, this morning we're going to celebrate Pentecost just as a little heads up. We're switching to a new series next, uh, starting next week. It's called um, Meeting Jesus, and it's about stories from the gospel accounts where individuals, uh, well, actually, and a, and a couple of others from Acts as well as Paul's experience, where they encountered Jesus and what changed in their life. We're, we'll hear about lots of them, Herod and um, Peter and I'm trying to think some of the others, Paul, um, Zacchaeus, uh, the, the people on the road to Emmaus is, is next week. And so... Um, just encourage you, it's a different kind of series. We'll also be doing some testimonies. So we'll be hearing from people within our congregation who met Jesus and their experience and what changed in their life. And I think it'll be a really interesting and wonderful summer series. But this morning, I want to turn our attention to the story of Pentecost. And let me get, begin by asking you a question. Have you ever had a spiritual experience that was moving? Maybe a weekend retreat? Maybe it was a week at camp? Maybe it was a missions trip, maybe for a short time, maybe for an extended period of time, where you changed, where God spoke to you in your heart, and you, you walked away that, uh, after that period of time, a changed person. And you thought about coming back home, and you thought about all of the people uh, that you'd see back home, your friends and your family, and you've maybe struggled struggled with the fact that something has changed in your life and they're kind of expecting the same old you to come back. And you're wondering, how do I, how do I convey this deep, meaningful experience? How do I, how do I share with them what, what's happened? They, they can't understand. I think about that experience and experiences that I've had when I think about the story of Shavuot, of Pentecost. Because the story of Shavuot, or Pentecost, is God giving the law to Israel. And the story goes like this. Moses went up to Mount Sinai. Joshua traveled with him, but for the most part, Moses was alone. And for 40 days, 40 days, Moses had this incredible spiritual experience. He met with God, and God wrote his law on some stone tablets and gave it to Moses. Imagine all that changed in Moses' life in those 40 days. How God just turned him around and changed his heart completely. And then Moses thought about coming down to Israel. And I wonder what he thought. Did he think they'll never understand what I went through? They'll, 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 They'll be struggling. They can't understand what I went through. Do you think that Moses was excited that I can't wait to tell my sister Miriam, my brother Aaron, and all of Israel about this experience with God that I've had. I can't wait to share it in some way. Look, here's some stone tablets, but so much happened up there. But what happened? As the story goes, Moses comes down from the mountain after having this authentic experience with God. And instead of seeing them worshiping God, instead of seeing them waiting for him and anticipating his return, they have substituted the worship of the real God with the golden calf that they called God. That they said, these are the gods who led us out of Egypt. And they committed all sorts of acts of revelry. And you've got to think, Moses just had this amazing encounter with God, this authentic experience with God. 
in, in, in a way that no other human being has ever had. And here they are, worshiping a golden calf. How frustrating must that have been? Not only did they not understand what Moses went through, they ignored what Moses went through. They forgot what Moses went through. And Moses got frustrated, and he got angry, and he threw the stone tablets down and broke them. And then he told people to strap a sword to their side and go through Israel and kill the rebellious. And that day, that day, 3,000 people, 3,000 people were executed for their disobedience. This is the celebration of Shavuot. It's a little happier than that because Shavuot is the promise that we remember and Israel knows this was, this was idolatry. They were punished for their idolatry. But the beauty of this story is that God reached out to Israel and gave him the law. I would say that, um, that the, the Jewish festivals accomplished five things and and Shavuot, was, what's special about it is that it's one of the seven feasts prescribed in the Torah, along with Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, uh, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, and then 50 days following Passover is the, is the festival of Shavuot. Shavuot simply means weeks. So it occurs at, at the end of the seventh week after Passover. And we get the word Pentecost, that's the 50, 50 days there are really five things that I, I say that, that these festivals do, these Jewish festivals do, and they, and they really are something worth looking at. Number one, they point people to God. They show God as creator, as redeemer, as sovereign. Secondly, for Israel, they create a culture in the same way that our festivals, our holidays, create a culture for us here in America. In Israel, they create a culture for them. Shavuot is one of three pilgrimage festivals. So if you were in Jerusalem today, or Jerusalem on Tuesday when, when Pentecost uh, was celebrated, then you would have seen Jerusalem flooded with people celebrating for Shavuot. The third thing is that they all point to a historic event. We saw in Passover, for those who, who have come to the Seder or who have come to the Seder in the past, that it's remembering God's, uh, God bringing Israel out of Egypt. Shavuot is the celebration of God giving the law to Israel on Mount Sinai. The fourth thing that all of these do and even those uh, Jewish people who reject Jesus as Messiah will, will say that these feasts point to the coming of the Messiah. And of course, we see in these feasts Jesus fulfilled in so many wonderful ways. And we'll see that again here today. And the fifth thing that they do is they point to the end times. They point to the end times. I always say that these, five, that these seven feasts are markers. They mark history and they mark the future, and they mark the Messiah. So let's fast forward. Let's fast forward because Israel celebrates Shavuot year after year after year. It becomes part of their culture. And some 1,500, a couple thousand years later, we see Jesus on the scene, Yeshua. And we see his disciples And you can imagine what these disciples went through. For three years, they traveled with this guy, with their rabbi. For three years, they saw amazing things, which we talked about in our master series. We saw Jesus turn water into wine. And we saw him heal the sick and heal the leper and raise the dead men. And then one weekend on Passover, all of this changes and the world gets rocked. They're in Jerusalem because it is a pilgrimage festival of Passover, they're celebrating it there. And all of a sudden, Jesus is 
led to the cross and he's executed. And they all lost hope. And then three days later, Jesus raises from the dead and appears to them. I mean, these guys went through a roller coaster in the matter of a weekend. And he raises on the Feast of First Fruits. So he dies on Passover, he raises on the Feast of First Fruits. And, these, and, and you can imagine their experience. For 40 days, 40 days, Jesus spends time with his disciples, revealing himself after his resurrection, speaking to them, teaching them, going around, revealing himself to others for 40 days. And then, at the end of 40 days, Jesus ascends into heaven. Once again, stumping his disciples who thought, this is the it, this is it. The Messiah is going to set up his kingdom and Israel is going to be once again a whole nation. And all of a sudden, Jesus leaves. And you've got to think that these people, they, they, they were probably dumbfounded. They've had this amazing spiritual experience that nobody else would quite understand. They've been places. But before Jesus left, he gave his disciples instruction. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read that on one occasion while they were eating together, Jesus gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So imagine this, just for a moment. Most of these disciples are from the Galilean region. Jesus tells them to stay in Jerusalem. So picture that. Picture going somewhere on vacation and Jesus saying, I want you to stay here for a little while. You might say, I've got work to do. I've got family to take care of. I've got this, I've got that to do. But Jesus says, stay there. And who knew how long this would be? Would this be a few days? Would this be a few months? Would this be years? How long would they wait? I mean, Jesus really put the disciples in these places of trust. And for, so for 40 days he spends with them. He ascends into heaven. And then, and then comes the Feast of Shavuot. All of Israel is filled with people. Jerusalem's filled with people from all over the world. Why? Because this is a pilgrimage festival. And people are coming from all sorts of places because the Jews have been displaced since the time of the exiles. So we have some of them coming from Egypt, Alexandria area. Some of them are coming even further east in Africa. Some are coming from Rome and from Greece, from modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. Some are coming from modern-day Iran and Iraq, and they're all coming here. They speak a different language. They speak different languages. But one thing is the same, and that is that they are Jews, and they have come to worship God on the Feast of Shavuot. Think about this. This is the first time the disciples have been alone without Jesus during a Jewish feast for a few years. So I wonder what that was like. They've had this amazing spiritual experience and they kind of get together in a room and they spend time praying, probably processing a lot of things that have happened. And here outside of their room, Jerusalem is filled with people and I wonder if they felt disconnected. I wonder if they felt a little frustrated that how do I explain to these people all that we've experienced? What, what do we do? Well, while they're there praying together, all of a sudden there's this rush of wind into the house. And these tons of fire start dancing over top of them. And they begin to speak 
And they begin to speak in different languages. And all the crowd outside, they rush to the house where this has taken place. Because they want to see what happened. And, and what they discover is that they, they hear people speaking all of these different languages. And they say to one another, they're speaking in our language. Right? Because they're all from all over the world. And now, all of a sudden, they're hearing the word of God spoken in their language, in their native tongue. The native tongue for, the, for these disciples was probably Aramaic. And so here they are, they're speaking, and the crowd is like, they're drunk. And Peter gets up and says, listen, it's nine o'clock in the morning. These men are not drunk. And he goes on to give an incredible sermon. And he quotes from different passages of scripture, and one of which is Joel chapter 1. In Joel chapter 1, starting verse 28, it says this, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice there's two things that Peter quotes here. First, he talks about the day that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on the people. And wouldn't you know it would happen on this day, the day of Shavuot, on the day of Pentecost. But then he says, he says, and before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, there would be something else that would happen. And he go, if you go back, it says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. He's referencing the night of the crucifixion, right? The eclipse, the crazy events that happened, the earthquake, the mayhem. And a lot of those people who were there for Shavuot were probably there for Passover. Even though they may not have known that Jesus was dying on the cross, they all saw those things. The eclipse, the storm, the earthquake, the people getting out of tombs and walking around. I mean, it was a crazy, crazy haunted night in Jerusalem. And so people hear this message and they say to Peter, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be saved. Leave this wicked generation. And that day, that day, 3,000 people, 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus and were saved. I don't know if that means something, because what happened before, when God gave the law on Mount Sinai, right, there were 40 days in which Moses was on the mountain, And when he came down, he saw the disobedience and 3,000 people were killed for their disobedience. When the Holy Spirit comes, 3,000 people give their life to Jesus. God writes some amazing poetry, doesn't he? We can't make this stuff up. This is amazing. This really is so wonderful. A lot of us refer to Pentecost as the birthday of the church. And I guess guess you could say that. Um, I think of it as bigger and better than that. The, the day of Pentecost, the day of Shavuot, is the day that God wrote his law on your hearts 
and on your minds. This is the day that God reached out and fulfilled all of the brokenness of the old covenant. This is the fulfillment of the new covenant in a wonderful way. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we read this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will, be, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they've broken my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and I will be their God. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. This is an incredible passage. And, and, and I love what Bill had to say about for, during the Lord's Supper and what that meant. But I want you to see something. You know, he's talked about Moses not being able to, to enter uh, the, the, um, the Holy of Holies. But think about this. There were, on, on Sinai, there was one person, one person that received God's law. It was Moses. And if you wanted to get close to God, if you wanted to learn about God, if you wanted to have your sins forgiven, you needed a priest. And the priest was the only one, beginning with Aaron, who could enter the most holy place of God. But here's what God is saying. I will write my law on your hearts from the least to the greatest. Young and old, men and women, boys and girls, it does not matter. God is changing the way he speaks to us. As Hebrew says in the past, God spoke to us through prophets and priests, but in today he speaks to us through his son. I think about this because there's a, there's a movie out that you've probably heard of. It's called Heaven is for Real, and maybe you've read the book. But it's about this little boy who has, I guess you call it a near-death experience of sorts, and he, he spends some time in heaven. And as you, as you kind of get familiar with the story, you realize that, um, that his time on earth was a few minutes long, but his time in heaven was, seemed much longer, kind of like the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. They, they're, in, they're in Narnia for years and years and years, and they come back, and no time has changed whatsoever. But this little boy has this experience, and his father's a pastor, and, and he begins to tell his dad about some of the things that he experienced, and of course, everyone's like, yeah, okay, you know, okay. But everything he says, it's no theological discourse. It's simple, and it's, and it's profound, and it's true, and it's biblically based. Uh, the one example I give right now, he's, you know, his mom says something like, oh, Colton, you know, it's a shame that you know, in heaven, there's going to be no swords because you love to play with swords. And he says, there's going to be swords in heaven, Mom. <laughs> Angels have swords, right? And, um, I mean, just these, and, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I, yeah, that's right, that's right, you know. And so it, people are uncomfortable with him because he's speaking about something and he's, he, he's no PhD. He's like seven years old. And he's talking about these profound experiences and talking about biblical truths and i think for a lot of people that makes them a little uncomfortable we want to hear from the scholars 
we want to read the Max Lucados. We want to read this. But this little boy speaking, it's not flowery enough. It's not lawn enough. It's who knows if this experience is true, I think some of us might say. But Pentecost, Pentecost is the realization that all of us, all of us can have real, meaningful, and true encounters with the living and holy God. Doesn't matter how old you are, how educated you are, doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl or a Jew or a Gentile. This is what Pentecost means. But I think for all of us, there's a question that we have. There's a question that, that we, we wonder about, and that is, how do I know if it's God that's talking to me? There's a lot of voices I hear in the world, including my own. How do I know it's God talking to me? And the same question, or a similar question, that we might ask to a little boy, how do I know it's the real God talking to you? Because I hear people say that God talks to them, and they say some crazy stuff, right? And sometimes it's Christians saying completely opposite things. So how do I know if it's God talking? In these stories, I think there are some common threads that we can look at. In the story of Moses and the story of the disciples on Pentecost, there's something here, I think, that helps us with those questions. Now remember, Moses spent 40 days alone with God. I think, it's a, I think that's very significant. The number 40 is a lot, happens a lot in Scripture, right? Noah, 40 days, it rains. Moses actually is interesting because his life is split up in three sections of 40. For the first 40 years, he was a prince in Egypt. He kills the soldier. He escapes the wilderness where he spends 40 years there in the wilderness. He gets married. He um, had the burning bush experience. And then he comes back to lead his, his people out of Egypt and then another 40 years, he wanders around in the wilderness. And, and also, he has these experiences. For 40 days, he prays for Israel, um, intercedes for them. For 40 days, he's on Mount Sinai receiving the word from God. There's others that have 40-day experiences. How about Elijah? Elijah flees to the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus spends 40 days praying and fasting in the wilderness. When, before he begins his ministry, it's there that he is tempted by Satan. So what's the deal with the 40 days? Well, 40 days in Scripture is, and, and according to Jewish tradition, is that it's a, it's a time of purity, that 40 days of purification. And in these cases, it was uh, these men having their hearts prepared for something that was to come. But there's something else that's significant here, and that's the wilderness experience. Because it's, I don't think it's any accident that they get sent away that they go out to a place where there's really no civilization. Uh, Bill, you talked about the wilderness being not a place of punishment, but a place of process, right? And why is the wilderness so, so important? Because the wilderness is a place of dependence. It's here in the wilderness that there's silence. And it's an environment where, where we can hear God's voice clearest. I mean, think about all the voices that you hear. You hear the television every day, you hear the news on the radio, you hear coworkers, you hear your family, all of these voices. You hear your own voice. And sometimes we've got to cut that off. And getting into the wilderness is a place of silence where we hear God's voice. In our men's uh, Tuesday night Men in Christ um, study, 
uh, one of the stories that Bill has told is about this uh, hiker who gets lost, right? And he, he got lost, and, and he's a Christian guy who's carrying his Bible and some other things, but, you know, he, he got lost for a long time. And he learned in the wilderness, in that experience of dependence, how to hear God's voice and what God's voice sounded like and got it trained to it. So he would say, and God told me to go over there and dig and find some water. And so and so he survived little by little until he was found. And one of the, one of the things that happened was he decided to, he needed to kind of scale back the things he was carrying. So he, he decided to leave his Bible back. And he thought for a minute, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is God's word. And then he thought, wait, God has been speaking to me through this whole journey. I've been, I've been hearing the voice of God. We hear God's voice clearest in the place of dependence and solitude. But also, lest you think that I'm encouraging you to leave your Bibles behind... God's word is extremely important. And I think one of the beautiful things is that the voice of God speaks and works in tandem with the written word of God. So if you hear something and you say, okay, that sounds good, but it contradicts scripture, you probably didn't hear the voice of God. The voice of God works in tandem. And by the way, when I, when I mean works in tandem, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story about two guys named Graham and Corey. Uh, a lot of you know Corey. He used to go here um, years and years ago. But we had this, this Friday night Bible study, young adult Bible study, years ago. And Corey brought his roommate from college named Graham. And Graham came to our study, and Graham was awesome. I mean, this guy knew scripture left and right. I mean, he, not in a pompous way, but in a, you could tell this man studied scripture. And so I was telling Corey about it. I'm like, man, Corey, this guy Graham is awesome. Like, what a great guy. And he just knows his Bible. And Corey said, well, funny story. When we were in college, I think his freshman year, he was saying, Graham would come to the Bible study and Graham knew nothing about scripture. They would be talking and be like, oh, you know, because Jesus died and the... Jesus died? I mean, probably knew Jesus died, but didn't know anything about that, the significance of it. Are all of these, all of the things that we sort of assume that we know in a Bible study, these kind of basic foundations, Graham knew nothing about it. But when Graham gave his life to the Lord, the word of God just flourished inside of him in a powerful, powerful way. You probably know this guy, Martin Luther. You probably heard of him. But Martin Luther did something extraordinary. Martin Luther translated the Bible from Latin. Actually, didn't translate from Latin, but at the time, only Latin was available. And the only people that knew what Scripture said, really, were the magisterium, the church, the Roman Catholic Church. And what, what they believed, what the Roman Catholic Church believed, was that they believe that scripture, and they still do, that scripture is so important. It is so precious that it's better in the hands of the experts than in the hands of everyone else. And so as long as, you're welcome, and I think the catechism says, you're welcome to interpret scripture, but it must come in line with what the magisterium believes. And so in order to protect heresy from happening, and this is understandable, 
what they would do is they would, they would not have the Bible available to the public because they were afraid of someone coming up with some heretical idea and putting their soul in danger and putting the souls of other in danger. They wanted to protect the word of God. And Martin Luther, during the time of the Reformation, he said, no, no, no. These people need to read God's word in their own language and have the Lord speak to them. In a sense, we, we call that private interpretation. And so the church said to Luther, do you understand what you're doing? Do you understand the implications that people might read God's word and come up with some obscure idea? Do you understand what risk you're running? And Martin Luther says, so help me God, this is what I'm going to do. And he did. And was the church right? Absolutely. There have been some really awful heretical things that have happened. But at the same time, there were some things that were done back in his day that were also evil as well. But a quote about Luther's translation and what happened in Germany, I, I thought this was really interesting. Uh, this is from Johannes Cochleus, who was a German humanist, lived uh, kind of contemporary of Luther. He said, Luther's New Testament was so much multiplied and spread by printers that even tailors and shoemakers, yes, even women and ignorant persons who had accepted this new Lutheran gospel and could read a little German, studied it with the greatest avidity as the fountain of all truth. Some committed to memory and carried it around in their bosom. In a few months, such people deemed themselves so learned that they were not ashamed to dispute, uh, to dispute about faith and the gospel, not only with Catholic laymen, but even with priests and monks and doctors of divinity. The word of God came alive in these people who were hearing the voice of God. It sort of reminds me a bit about Peter's experience. Remember, Peter has this dream about the unclean food coming down in a blanket, and God says to him, get up and eat, Peter. And Peter says, I'm not going to eat something that is unkosher, that would defile me. And God says, don't call unclean what God has made clean. And then Peter wakes up and has this, and and he's told to go to Joppa to Cornelius' house. And in Cornelius' house, who was a God-fearing, but he was a Gentile, a God-fearing man, and and Peter goes into Cornelius' house, even though that was extremely unclean, unkosher, and, and he preaches the gospel and answers questions, and these people receive the Lord Jesus, and they're the first Gentiles that receive the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes on, and Peter has this aha moment, like, Oh, I get it. Gentiles can be saved too. But when he goes back to the, to the elders of, in Jerusalem, a lot of them don't understand what's going on. Peter, why'd you go into a Gentile's house? And Peter has to explain it. But then they realize what the word of God says, that those who are, who are not my people will be called my people. So once again, these experiences that work in tandem, the voice of God with the word of God. And notice what had to happen in Jerusalem. That it took a church to process what God was saying. And I think that is what's so important to us. I, when, I, when I say private interpretation, I don't think that Luther ever believed that we should, we should interpret the Bible in a vacuum. But rather, that there is something beautiful and wonderful and powerful about the community of God coming together and hearing the voice of God and responding to the voice of God. Because when we hear the, vo- we hear the voice of God clearer, louder, 
and more fuller, and we can even hold our own uh, ideas accountable and in check when the community of believers committed are committed to the authentic revelation of God. In other words, in other words, God speaks to each and every one of us, and we get the chance to come together, and we hear God's voice even fuller. One of the things that we do here that you may not be familiar with, or that might be new for you, is that we have a teaching team. Six of us kind of share in the, in the teaching, and that's not like a, a, you know, a final number, like we will only have six and no more. That's, <clears throat> that's to mean to say that right now there's six of us. Who knows? Maybe there will be more someday. But that might be different for you, because you may come from a tradition where it was the pastor who gave the message pretty much all the time. And there's really two reasons why we do that. Number one, a practical reason, I try to spend a lot of time preparing my messages, and I don't know that I'd have a family if I had to speak every, every Sunday. So, there's a, so I'm very appreciative of the, other, of the others who, um, who share in the teaching. It's really a, a burden off my shoulders. But there's a bigger and more important reason. That's a philosophical reason. And that is that the Holy Spirit does speak to me. That I read scripture and I come up with an interpretation. But if I'm the only one that speaks, you're only hearing my experience. But when you hear from others, we're hearing this person's perspective. We're hearing God speak through them. And we're hearing God speak through them. And we're hearing God speak through them and through them and through them. And we are getting a bigger picture. Because I don't think any of us can have the full contained revelation of God within us. I think we have, that's the, the purpose of community, right? As, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for the body up is made up of many parts, and one part can't say to the other part, I don't need you. We work in tandem together. And I was, I was just blown away when we were studying Hosea. Some of the things people came up with was so amazing. I just sat there and thought, wow. And I, and I came to the, I was like, there, I would have never in a million years caught that. I would have never caught that. It was amazing, the teaching that happened and the, and, the, and the things that people shared that the Lord had revealed to them. This is how God works. It's different. Pentecost is the realization that God works differently than our society. See, our society thinks that that, the, the, that you're qualified when you have this much school and you become this and you become that and you become this and you become the grandmaster of this and whatever. But the Holy Spirit confirms something different. And, for, and Colossians 1, the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. And what that means is that God speaks to you and that God speaks to you, and that God speaks to you, and God speaks to you, and God speaks to every single one of you. He is always speaking. It's just a matter of us hearing his voice and responding. That is the hope and the promise and the beauty of Pentecost. Let's pray. Father, how amazing is your plan, your poetry that has been written and has been prepared for long before the foundations of the earth. And how beautiful that we can share in it and that we can experience it. And what a joy 
that we don't have to rely on someone else's experience. We don't have to say, I don't know God, so I'm going to ask my neighbor. But you have allowed each and every one of us to hear your revelation, to hear you speak into our hearts. You have written your law on our hearts and on our minds. So this morning, we say, here I am, God. I am listening to you. Word of God, speak into me. And this is not something that we have to conjure up. This is something, it's not like we have to bring God's Spirit to us. For He's here. It's that we have to turn our hearts. We have to invite ourselves into the life of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is already here with us. So God, this morning, we invite, we give ourselves permission to be in your presence. We give our ears permission to hear your voice. We give our eyes permission to see your perspective. We give our mind over to you. The mind of Christ. Thank you, God, for pouring your spirit on each and every person. Young and old, the little kids, and the elderly, and the men and the women, and people of all sorts of different races. Today we gather, not because we speak a common language or have a common heritage or a common skin color, but because the Holy Spirit has written his law on our heart and on our mind. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Help us to see that in each other and to treasure that in each other and to honor that and to look forward to that that today in this room is gathered people who have had incredible encounters with the holy God of the universe and have been changed forever and ever. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.